Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about eliminating screen conflicts in their home. This is Melanie Hempy, and welcome back. If you are new, we are so glad you found us. So earlier this month, we did part one of our book of the month that we're doing this month with Tom Kirstein's. His book is Disconnected. I love this book. I absolutely have everything underlined in this book. (laughs) And I have all the pages dog-eared. There's just, Tom is just such a good explainer of this problem. And so we are so glad that he's back today. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Melanie. Thanks for having me. Just so glad you're back. So for those who haven't heard uh, the first session, I would love for y'all to go back, of course, and listen to part one. I'll give you a little bit of a recap. If you remember, Tom, we talked about acquired ADHD. And that that's something that a lot of people have been really surprised about. I've gotten a lot of emails about that after our first podcast with you. And after they've gotten this book, they're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea this was something that was real. <laughs> it was just so, so good for you to um, break that down and explain it to us. And then the next thing that we talked about was the impact of electronic media on kids' brains and how this job of managing all this stuff just becomes a full-time job. And there was a lot of really, really good nuggets that we touched on. We thank you so much for that first podcast. So please be sure and, and listen to that. But today I'm wanting Tom to dive into part two of your book. Part two is entitled Technology's Effect on Social Emotional and family growth. And I just love the title. <laughs> I love the title. So you nailed it. So let's start with the effect on the social issues. So dive into that just for a minute. Yeah. So I'm going to talk actually pre pandemic and current pandemic. Okay. So the book is obviously came out before the COVID pandemic. So prior to that, we already had you know, some pretty serious uh, social setbacks among, you know, our nation's youth. And, the, you know, the reason what, what I really, you know, underscore in the book is that, you know, the average kid, depending on the research you look at, you know, spends between eight and nine hours a day. I mean, it might even be more now uh, if there's anything new that came out, um, staring at a screen. And that's more, more hours per day than any life activity, including sleep. Problem there is that as human beings, what are we? We are social, emotional beings. So we are wired, you know, through evolution to be communicating in a face-to-face manner with our fellow human beings. And the newer generation of kids now, you know, the kids that are in our society now and for the last 10 years, uh, have had very little of that. So, you know, going on, you know, uh, you know, texting or going on your Snapchat and chatting and all that, 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 that's, that doesn't constitute real communication in terms of, you know, from human nature, you know, and I underscore this in the book as well is that, you know, one of my biggest fears is that, you know, the generation of young kids, because they haven't had, you know, enough of that real face to face communication, which is a learned trait where we actually learn how to communicate by picking up on on the nonverbal cues and the, and the facial nuances and all that stuff, um, or even just, you know, really interpreting what the message is that the person in front of them is delivering. You know, I fear that that's going to really catch up to them, you know, when they graduate college and have to go on a job interview, for example, you know, stuff like that. I mean, how about just get married, right? (laughs) I know. Don't think about that, Mel. Like if I, you know, let's say I worked in finance in New York City or something like a lot of people in my area do, 
And I was, you know, interviewing a recent college graduate that came from, you know, a top 25 college, but the person didn't have, you know, it was sort of a shell in front of me with a 4.0 GPA. You know, how can I expect that individual, you know, to go out there and sell and be able to communicate? You know, they haven't really done that their whole life. So those are some of the things that I really dig into in that, in that section. Yeah, I love um, that point because this is something that parents, you and I included, even before you got involved in this, before I got involved in this, this is something we never would have even thought about because we grew up learning how to read social cues and body language. And we just did it all the time because we practiced it so much. But to your point with kids being on a screen in front of a screen, eight or nine hours or more, like you said, a day, there's just no time for practice. We didn't even know we were practicing it. It's right. kind of all we had back, you know, in previous generations. You know, I always say, and in, in a lot of my shows, I say, you know, our parents did it right. They didn't know they were doing it right, but they did it right. They opened the door and let us outside and we played, you know, it, in my house, we couldn't come home until the streetlights were on. <laughs> Same exact thing, just out running around, coming home dirty. You know, my mom would yell out the front door, Tommy, Joey, Carrie, Peggy, time for dinner. She knew we were somewhere in, in somebody's backyard in the neighborhood. Yeah. And we were so creative, right? And we were being innovative with our mud pies and we had no idea that that was helping. And mom, of course, didn't read a book that told her to do that. And, and But today I feel bad for parents because we have to learn so much science, you know, and part of what you're talking about right now is the science behind communication. It's the number of words heard even for a child is so much less than years ago. And that is affecting um, especially small children, you know, between yeah. one and three, you know, you have to hear a certain amount of words in order to really get on that trajectory for success for your academics. And, and, but then for teenagers, you know, it's awkward, all this awkwardness, you have to go through it sooner or later at one point or another. So you can't, you can't bypass it. You're going to have to get awkward and learn how to talk to people. So you might as well do it when you're little and not when you're 15 or to your point, 25 and trying to get a job and you're awkward sitting, you know, talking in front of people. It's interesting. It's almost like what you said to me, Amel, makes a lot of sense. Like we have to teach our kids how to do something that's inherent in them. You know what I'm saying? Like that should not really have to be taught. It should be experienced and therefore learned from the experience. But because the experience has been removed, now it has to be taught. So we had to get really intentional about something that we never had to think about before. It's no longer organic, you know? Right. So in chapter five, in part two starts with chapter five. So you dive into video games. Let's touch on this a minute. I know we talk about phones a lot in our Facebook group and our Screen Strong Families Facebook group. If you're not a member of that, jump over there. You get a lot of really good support from parents. We go back and forth between video games and and social media. Those are the two basic things, right? So let's let's talk about video games for a few minutes. Yeah, sure. I mean, I know that's something you have a lot of personal experience with. I know you share that willingly. Um, and it's something, you know, I, I, you know I, I mean, I have some stories in the book that are sort of mind boggling. Um, you know, so this idea, you know, when I was out lecturing all over the place before COVID to a crowd of parents, for example, I would say, raise your hand if you think, you know, video games are addictive. You know, you get some hands that were raised and, you know, some that weren't. And then I would point out, you know, that uh, I think it's three years ago now that the World Health Organization you know, now recognizes gaming disorder as an actual diagnosable condition. And I think the American Psychological Association uh, in their DSM guide is going to be putting that in their next edition. In January of uh, 22. Yeah, yes. So that will be an actual diagnosable condition. And that's kind of frightening when you think about it, because it's, 
you know, it's really not much different than any sort of addiction, whether it's gambling or drug abuse. You know, the symptoms are very same, are, are very similar. You have a kid that's playing countless hours of video games per day. Parents finally get ticked off about it and take the video game system away. And a kid, re, you know, the kid reacts no different than taking drugs away from a drug addict. Right. And we're seeing, at least I am in my, you know, in my profession, seeing that, that stuff, uh, you know, happening regularly. Yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it? And I, I experienced it firsthand, exactly what you're talking about with my oldest son. And once I understood the chemical nature of what was going on in his brain, of course, it was kind of late, <laughs> late in the game, <laughs> um, no pun intended, but it was kind of late till I figured it out. Then it all made sense to me. And it's like a gambling addiction. That's the best way I think I can describe it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to talk about too in that, in that section, Mel, is, um, you know, the, you know, I played Nintendo and Atari when I was a kid, but, you know, the difference between the, the, you know, those games from previous generations and the ones that are created now is that the newer types of video games, they have hundreds of, of engineers you know, behind the development of these games. And their intent is to use like sort of a token economy to use strategies that create, you know, that slow drip of dopamine that you get. Like Fortnite, for example, they use, you know, those emotes and other, and other sort of things to sort of reward the brain. And, and you want to continue to come back for more and get more because kids don't realize that they're getting that slow do dopamine drip, which is that feel-good chemical, and they keep getting it and getting it, getting it. And that's what's tied to addiction. You know, that's why it is going to be in the DSM guide come January. It's fascinating that years ago when I was first dealing with this back in 2010, it was just so taboo to say video game addiction. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. parents would say, oh, that's not a thing. You know, you're making that up. And I'm like, well, no, it is a thing. And it's really just, I'm just so happy. It's finally getting a little more attention. Well, it's not even just those reactions. It's, it's, you know, the, the other components of it too is like, if you have a kid that, you know, there are kids out there, that's all they do is game. You know, they have the headset on and they, and parents, you know, some of these kids, they don't go outside at all. They don't go interact in person with anyone. And if, and, and parents fear that, you know, if they take away those games, cause they're usually, you know, with the headset on and the little microphone, you know, playing with quote friends, you know, the parents feel like, oh my God, my kid's not going to have any friends, but those aren't really friends. <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? So let's talk about that a minute. I'm so glad you brought that up because this is the big question we get right now, especially this year with the pandemic and all. Parents are so convinced that if their child doesn't play Fortnite, if they don't get on these games and play Call of Duty and whatnot, that they won't have any friends. They, they feel very forced to allow their kids to do this because that is where their friends live. And then the first podcast, we talked about that myth of the bubble and how people say, oh, Melanie, if you don't allow your kids to play video games, you're living in a bubble. And I turn it around and I say, no, your, your kids are living in a bubble. Every day you talk to families, right? You have a private practice. You deal with this issue every day. Why do we think or what is wrong with the assumption that a video game is the only place your kid can have a friend? Yeah, well, I, you know, for the for those particular you know families, th those kids are already you know kind of locked in in this, the solitary confinement of the video game world. Parents, their like I said, their fear is that their kid is you know they're not they're you know they're just not going to have any friends if they're not playing video games. But they did, but you don't know that, right? The only way to know that is to is to you know su substantially limit the video game playing or removing remove it altogether for a kid that's already addicted. And what kids will do, you know, kids aren't just going to sit and be bored. You know, they want to interact. That's, that's biological. Yeah. And they're going to, you know, they'll become more proactive 
and reach out and try to set up actual, you know, physical arrangements with other kids. But there's a fear. I think it's based on fear that, you know, parents said the, the fear of, well, if I do, you know, limit or reduce the video games, what if that doesn't happen? Well, if you don't, if you don't do anything about it, you're going to have a kid that's going to be living in your basement at 40 years old, playing video games, smoking weed. That's right. So I worked in a public high school for 25 years as a counselor, you know, so I understand, you know, the, how the entire system works and so forth. Yeah. You know, so schools have become substantially reliant on, on computer-based learning, right? Even prior to COVID. And what, what nobody has thought about, and I have brought it up, you know, to administrators and so forth, and, you know, it's sort of just shrugged off, but I feel like it's something I need to consult with them on if they would allow me to, is that what if screen addictive disorder makes its way into the DSM guide, which I think will happen, right? Yeah. If video game addiction, if, if gaming disorder has, you know, it's not just video games. I mean, screens in general. The internet, yeah. All of it, the phones and so forth. Now, let's, let's say that that happened, okay? And you have a kid that has an, an actual diagnosable condition of screen addictive disorder. And now schools are completely dependent on screens, okay, which they are. How are they going to handle it if all of a sudden like 20, 30, or 40% of their students have this diagnosis and now they can't use screens? How are they going to uh, figure out a way to reteach these kids? No, they do need to think about that because that is happening right now. I know yeah. the kids are lost in, with the screen. You know, it can't be for everybody, right? It can't be a one size fits all. You know, what, what's happened with COVID now, what I've seen, you know, with, with the, these hybrid situations and kids being completely, you know, virtual learning, particularly the middle schoolers and teenagers, while, I think we probably talked about this in the first session, you know, while they are in their bedrooms, their bedroom has now become their school, their classroom, their phones are right next to them. Yeah. And they're being distracted uh, every 10 seconds. And, you know, and based on the research I did on multitasking, you know, you're, you cannot, if, you, if you're, the teacher is teaching a mathematics equation and you glare at a little alert you got on your phone, even for two seconds, there's no way your brain is going to be able to comprehend what that teacher just taught. No, you're exactly right. And teenagers think that they can multitask and they absolutely cannot. And all the overlapping of the multiple screens at the same time is making our kids really anxious. And they're they're missing, of course, a lot of their education because they're not able to focus. Yeah. So let's just, I'm um, wrapping up with the video game thing. They're playing video games in class too. And so I just talked to a teacher two weeks ago who said that she has students that actually bring their game controllers and hook them up to their laptops while they're in class. Like this isn't even study hall. This is actually in class. So that was sort of a new one for me. That That's sort of a bold kid that will do that. They'll actually bring in your controller and somehow hook it up and play. I don't know. That sounds yeah, well, I, you know, yeah. I think, I, I think the, uh, we got to put, you know, put some of that. Uh, I think the teacher has to shoulder some of that as well. Oh Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I feel bad for them because, you know, they've got 30, 20 kids that they're trying to deal with and there's only one of them. And, and, and the other thing, I think if your teacher listening to this and you have a classroom full of kids on their laptops, you need to stand in the back of the room. You need to see exactly everything that's going on on their screens because they're probably playing Fortnite. Yeah, oh, yeah, they are. Yeah, not all of them, but certainly a lot of them are. And, you know, another thing, too, while we're on that is, uh, you know, a lot of high schools have study hall periods. You know, it's really meant so that you could study and so forth. But I, I don't know what the statistic would be, but I would say nine out of 10 of the kids in that room aren't studying. They're just fiddling around, playing games on their computers or their phones and so forth. You know, think about how much a kid could get done in that time, if you have 45 minutes, you can catch up on your homework, maybe even get all your homework done. Yeah. So you can go home and play out in the backyard instead of tell your mom yeah. that you got to go do more homework with your phone and your computer. And 
exactly. Yeah. And it's taking me four hours to do my homework. Oh my gosh, that's a whole nother problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on chapter six, the title is Parenting from a Distance. And this is just one of my favorites because Screen Strong is all about reconnecting families. And that's our, our big message to people is these screens are taking time away from your family time and from this very short period of time that you have with your kids to really pour into their life and to pour your values and to guide and teach and, you know, direct them and all of that. And so you had some really good points in here about the dinner table. And I I guess I'm just so sad over the amount of families, the number of families that I know that don't have family dinner anymore. Like, I guess I'm living in a la-la land because I just think everybody sits down every night and has dinner and talks to their kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're uh, we're we're dating ourselves here. Uh, that that's you know, that that's what our culture and our customs always have been. But in the modern tech era, more families than not don't have regular family meals together. And why is that important? Because, um, like I, I give an example in that chapter, Mel. Like, you know, even the very definition of family has changed. Uh, you think of family, you think of like the Brady Bunch hanging around the dinner table, having conversations with each other. But the typical family of four now resembles more along the lines of, you know, four individuals living solitary lives under the same roof, staring at their own individual screen. I'm sure you know, maybe you could refresh my memory on the statistics for kids who actually have dinner with their family, just how much better they do academically. So kids that have, or I'm I'm sorry, families that have regular sit down family dinners together most nights of the week uninterrupted, meaning there's no TV in the background, no phones allowed. The children in those families, according to, according to studies, do substantially better academically, are less likely to engage in early sexual activity, are more likely to graduate college, are less likely to get divorced later in life, and are, more li- and, and are less likely to suffer from mental and emotional health issues. And th- this is data. Like, w- this is just statistics and research. You know, what I, what I discuss also is even, you know, the car rides to school, right? So, and, and a lot of this I just picked up from my own experiences when I was working at the high school, which I retired from a little over a year ago. When I would pull in, you know, there were about a thousand students at the high school where I worked. And it was one entrance. And, you know, so it was, it was very trafficy. And every time I looked in my rearview mirror, when there was a, a student in the passenger seat, their neck would be bent and they'd have a set of earbuds in and they'd be just on their phone. So even those five or 10 minute car rides to and from school with our kids, uh, which is just very much like the family dinner table where you're yeah. just communicating and engaging, even though, you don't, even though it doesn't seem very meaning, meaningful, it is, you know, 180 days a year, five or 10 minutes a day, it's just critical you know, for their development, that communication, that connection with their parents. But unfortunately, that's now been replaced by the little glowing devices in their head. We have a Screen Strong Challenge, which is where kids take a whole week off of their devices. They don't play video games. They don't have their phones. And they actually write an essay about what that experience was like. And when you were just mentioning the car ride, that is one thing that I read over and over in these essays. These kids are, these teenagers are usually juniors, maybe seniors um, in this, in these classes. And they say that, oh my goodness, on the way to school, I've been talking to my dad more than I've ever talked to him. In fact, I don't think I've talked to my dad this much all year. And I'm like, oh my goodness, to hear in their words, the impact 
of no screens in the car on the way to school and the time they're having with their parents, you know, they go home and since they're not on their screens, checking their social media, they help their mom make dinner. Maybe they go for a family walk yep. after dinner. They're recovering this time and they're so happy about it. And at the end, they say, one of the things I'm going to do from now on is make sure I have time to talk to my parents. I'm like, oh, that is so sweet. But this is, again, one of these things that, wow, we never had to worry about that because we naturally just had time to talk to our parents, right? Right, right. And here's something else that that just you reminded me of. I think it's in that chapter is a statistic that I found, okay? And the statistic is that the average parent spends just three and a half minutes per week in, in, in meaningful conversation with their children. Yeah, that's from the Kaiser Foundation. And that is a fascinating statistic because no parent thinks that's true. But meaningful conversation, not custodial conversations like tie your shoes or where's your lunch, you know, we don't have the presence anymore. We, yeah. We're just we're just not there. Yeah. So I picked up, a, here's a quick example. I, I had to pick my daughter up. She does track for the eighth grade, right? You know, she's not like a track star or anything, but she just does it because it's social and she likes it. So we were carpooling. So I had to pick her, her and one of her friends up. And, you know, as I was looking in the rear view mirror, her friend was like on her phone the whole time. And I didn't really want to say anything to her. We were passing where my cousin lived. My daughter said, oh, why don't we stop by, you know, and see Paulie and Anthony? I'm like, you really want to? So we're literally passing their street. And, you know, her friend was like, yeah, let's do that. So we turn, we go down the street. I pull up in front of the house and I call my cousin. And I'm like, hey, you're home? He's like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm out to dinner. I'm like, oh, I'm in front of your house. So anyway, we leave. And about five minutes later, my daughter's friend said, hey, I thought we were stopping by your cousin's house. <laughs> Me. I'm like, we just did. We just, we just, we just talked <laughs> about it. You missed it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? so it, just, that is so crazy. It's just like they're on another planet in another world, which they virtually, they are. They are. On another, they're on another planet. They're not, they're not with us. <laughs> and so you miss all these moments when your parent and your kids are on their screens and you know, you're on yours. And I mean, I don't want to keep bashing this over and over, but it's true. You miss these little moments that you can't prep or prepare for. They just happen in life with your kids where something will pop in their head and they'll ask you a question and they're there to do that because they're not on their phone and you're in the moment with them and you're present. It's all this, the nooks and crannies, I call it, of life. And when my kids were in, I don't know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, those younger years, when we came home, you know, they needed more attention. They need more structure. What I had to do personally was when I drove home from school, I pulled into the driveway. I literally left my phone in the car and shut the door, went in with the kids, unpacked their book bags, got them a snack, talked to them about their day. Because you know, it's that first 10 minutes that you're going to get everything. (laughs) You're going to get all the talking. And then after 30, 40 minutes, after they would get situated off in the backyard or riding their bikes or off with their friends, then I would go back to my car and get my phone because I realized that I would get distracted and I missed those little moments, you know, right when they came home. So that's super important. I'm so glad that we're talking about that. The other thing to wrap up this little section is the um, screen free vacations. I have a blog post written on this. If y'all want to go look it up on the screenstrong.com website, go to the blogs because I'm such a firm believer in this. I just love that you you included this in your book that you should not have vacations with video games <laughs> coming along. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting though. So we go, we, the Kirsting family, we go, my wife is a vacation planner. 
you know, what I noticed over the last, you know, five years or more is you, you go to the pool area and there's not too many kids around. And it's because they're up in their rooms. It is very, very sad how many teenage boys gauge the vacation based off where the plugs are in the room in relation to their bed so they can sit in their bed and play video games while their parents are at the beach. I've heard this so many times. Oh, yeah. yeah it makes crazy. me crazy. They don't even know how to unplug and have fun anymore. So I'm so glad you brought that up in, in your book. And you have the tips here, you know, no devices in the car, no screens in the bedroom, bring books to restaurants. That's a great tip. When my kids were little, I had a little bag of stuff that we brought that we only did while we were at the restaurant, you know, so it was kind of a special kind of thing. My kids, when they were younger, you know, they would be reading because we'd go out to dinner like all the time. And, uh, you know, some older people would more than once would, you know, came up to us and be like, oh my gosh, I just want to let you know how impressed I am. We've never seen anything like this. Wow. (laughs) Some kid is reading, you know. know. One other thing while we're on this, Mel, is uh, over the last several years, I had, you know, because I deal with so many teenagers. And a lot of kids up in this area, uh, at least prior to COVID, went, would go away to summer camp. And I'm being dead serious when I tell you this. And I would ask them, a whole bunch of them, you know, what was the best part about summer camp? And, I, and believe it or not, you know what they said to me? Not having my phone. What they experienced is something that they craved that they didn't know they craved. And that's interper- interpersonal uh, relationships and communication. Those are the things that they remember from these sleepaway camps. You know, and I just hope that, you know, summer sleepaway camps don't cave and allow kids to start bringing their phones because they'll lose the whole meeting. A lot of them do. A lot yeah. of them do still. Um, that's a parent decision. I think parents just need to say, no, you're not bringing your phone. You, you don't need the camp to tell you. You just need to say, nope, that's not happening. I think some camps say that they don't allow them during certain times, but they all have them at night under their sleeping bags. So. The ones I'm referring to, these particular camps, they're not allowed at all. They're not allowed. Okay, well, that's yeah. awesome. I need to figure out the list of the camps that don't allow phones. In Chapter 7, you talk about handheld devices and the impact they have on emotional development. And and you break down these five key areas, and I just wanted to run over those real quick with you. So the first one is self-awareness. So I'm so interested in this emotional stuff because this is, you know, anxiety is such a big part of our culture today with teenagers and parents are really struggling. And so I love that you're unpacking this. So the self-awareness, again, explain that to our listeners real quick, what emotional intelligence is. And then we're just going to go through this list and I'll just read it off to you. Yeah. Yeah. I love this part, by the way. So we have, every person has an IQ, your intelligence quotient. And then we also have an EQ, which is our emotional quotient. So your IQ is something that, that you're born with. So if you're born with an IQ of 110, you're, you, you're not getting it to 140, no matter what. You can go read every book in a library. It's just not going to happen. You might be able to nudge it up a couple of points by reading and so forth, but it's fixed. You're born with an IQ. You're fixed. All right? It's fixed. Now, your EQ, your emotional, uh, emotional intelligence, is the, is the ability to understand your emotions, to regulate your emotions, all right, to be, to be able to empathize with the emotions of others and the ability to cope with the adversities that were presented in life, right? So that's what having a strong emotional intelligence is. It's the ability for that recent college graduate to go into a job interview and maybe not even have the best GPA and just blow away the people that are interviewing him by his, his or her very presence, right? Yeah. So that's, that's part of what emotional intelligence is. Now, emotional intelligence, unlike uh, IQ, so EQ, unlike IQ, is not something that you are born with. It is something that must be developed, okay? 
It's something that's learned. And the type of learn there's only one form of learning that takes place to, to increase in emotional intelligence. And that is face-to-face communication with other human, be- human beings. That is the only well- way to develop a powerful emotional intelligence. And I, and I, sh- and I talk about this in the book because our, our, our children of this generation have very little face-to-face interaction with their peers. Very, very little. And, they're, and unfortunately, they're not developing a strong emotional intelligence. And now having a, it is, having a strong EQ is twice as important for success in life as having a high IQ. Wow. And we're not investing in that. We're not. And people don't realize it. And, and parents have everything to do with this because we have to structure our kids' lives in order so they're, in order for their executive function to develop and this emotional intelligence. Because executive functioning skills, I think, is really tied to this too. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. To yeah. the emotional intelligence. That's that's not, like you said, the fixed IQ. So the first thing here is the self-awareness and and how that just involves knowing, you know, who you are. And I think when kids are on social media, they don't have any clue who they are because they're so confused. They're looking at what everybody else is doing and what everybody else, you know, you know, and they don't know who they, they're not um, separate enough to figure out who they are. Cause you really have to, uh, I mean, if you're comparing yourself and you talk a lot about that in the book too, if you're comparing yourself to, to other people all the time, you'll never figure out who you are. Yeah. And I present that, I pose that question to a lot of kids, particularly, you know, at, when I was lecturing all over the place, um, I would lecture to, you know, to high school kids as well, parents, and sometimes just an auditorium full of kids. And if there was, you know, a couple kids in the front row, I would get to that this point in my lecture. And I'd say, all right, I have a question for you. And I'd, you know, pick on some kid in the front row that I knew wouldn't be too embarrassed. Uh, and I would say, who are you? And they'd say, well, what do you mean? And I'd say, I would say, well, who are you? And I already kn- knew what the answer would be. And the kid would respond, well, I'm, you know, John Smith. And I'd say, okay, hi, John Smith. And I'd go to the next kid. And the next kid would say, well, I'm Stephen Canizero or I'm blah, blah, blah. And then I would say, okay, everybody, ask me who I am right now. And then the kid would say, well, who are you? And I would say, well, I am not Tom Kirsting. That's what I'm named. Who I am is much deeper than that. I am a powerful, motivated, caring, loving, determined, spiritual lover of life. And then I would go on to, to, to present to them that that's what all of us are. Everybody in this room is that, but you can't know that if you never delve within yourself, if you're always distracted and you're living outside of yourself externally in a screen, you can never know who you actually are, the depth of who you are. And the only way to do that is through repose, is through you know quiet, silent reflection and lots of that. Which is really scary for kids and, yeah, and teenagers. And that's such a good story way to to point that out. The next thing is the self-management, of course, that is really hard <laughs> for kids and the just managing their emotions and preventing their outburst. And I'm, I don't mean to laugh about this, but it's just so sad, Tom. I have to, sometimes I just can't cry. <laughs> I just have to laugh because they're not managing themselves on social media and even on video games. Everything is instant. Everything. You have a, a private thought, it immediately gets posted right? It's, there's no privacy. And I've really been learning a lot about this and talking to other people and teenagers and parents about this lack of privacy that I'm getting off on a rabbit trail here for a minute, but, um, the exposure of every personal detail of your life is so stressful 
I can't imagine being a teenager and growing up and having to do all that. I think I would be locked away somewhere. I would not be able to handle it. It's too emotional. It's too difficult to expose every private thought. I know, I know. And I, and what I really work with people on is, is making the private thoughts powerful, you know, cause there's a lot of this, you know, woe is me. Oh yeah. Delivery. yeah. It's like, you know, when you really, you know, take a moment and reflect and you really implement attitude of gratitude, we don't really have much to complain about. Right. But this, this concept here that you're talking about in the book on self-management and the ability to prevent these, you know, outbursts instead of, yeah, you know, that's what I feel like it's, this is not helping our kids. So it's such a temptation to just blurt out anything that you're thinking. So you're not practicing your self-management. You're not practicing executive function skills. You're not practicing your self-control. And this is the time of life where you have to nail this. If you don't nail it when you're a teenager, nobody wants to be around you. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's no pause. In other words, there's no thinking. So you know, because like you, like you mentioned to your point, everything is instant, right? The instant gratification, the push of a button, um, you know, the brain gets, gets, uh, trained to just react. So there, so there's, and our emotions just react, right? So there's no pause. There's no thought of like, all right, well, somebody, my mom or dad said this or that, you know, maybe instead of just punching the wall, you know, before thinking, you know, uh, I, I need to learn how to pause and actually think for a moment right. in order to suppress my emotions. So it's almost like the emotions come out before the brain has an opportunity to even think. And the the screens and the games and the phones make it worse because it's yes. the tool that they can use to lash out and yep. um, and not pause. It's not instant at all. The next one is is um, the motivation and how screens are training our kids. I really think to be externally motivated instead of intrinsically motivated. And, um, you don't do anything just because you want to anymore, because you just have this feeling and this motivation. You, you do it because you're winning points, you're getting likes, you're, it's like a carrot, you know, that you're after. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, so, and, and that's what's, what's occurred is that kids have become conditioned to instant gratification right? and, and they don't know what delayed gratification is anymore. So delayed gratification is I want to go, uh, you know, I, I want to go to Harvard. Okay. And, and, and that's what you're thinking about. You want to go to Harvard and you want to go to medical school, right? For as just as, as an example. And when that is in the forefront of one's mind constantly, then you're taking, you know, the actions that aren't quite immediately gratifying, you know, but, but are delayed, you know what I'm saying? That are down the road gratifying. So, you know, and, and because of the, the passiveness of, gaming and, 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 you know, phone use and screens, it's just passing the time and it's instantly gratifying. It's sort of distracting our kids' minds from building that, that idea of delayed gratification and goal setting. And, you know, even with video games, I noticed with my oldest son that if he would get really frustrated with a game, he would just hit the reset button and start it over. Like it, it, it's like, wait a minute, you can't do that in life. You have to work through the conflict and you have to figure it out. So it's, again, it's not a very good training ground, like you said, for delayed gratification. Um, so we're talking about emotional development and emotional intelligence. And so the last two things in this section that we'll wrap up with empathy and social skills. Those are the last two. So I, I, this whole concept of empathy has to begin, like you said, like all of these has to begin 
with face-to-face relationships. And empathy, the way you describe it, you know, this ability to read the room and really understand what other people are going through, you you can't do that on a screen. And, and explain a little bit, I'm going to put you on the spot here, just some of the issues maybe that you've dealt with with teenagers since you talk to teenagers all the time about how, how does this come out? What is this, how does this manifest in day-to-day life when a kid doesn't have empathy? Yeah, well, I mean, empathy is, is, you know, one of the greatest human qualities. It's the ability to sort of enter into another person's emotional space and identify with that. And that's what makes human beings, you know, emotional, loving beings. If that's sort of been severed, you know, in our mind and we, and we can't piece that together and we don't have that, then we have chaos. And we see a lot of that. I see it not just with kids, but I, I, I uh, you know, I refer to social media as my psychological laboratory. Yeah, because I, I go on there. I don't really post all that much on social media. Um, I don't post any really any personal stuff. I just I post stuff related to this topic and things that I think are important for people. But I spend more time viewing people's actions because for me it helps me understand how people are changing. And I'll you know see people on there that you know really kind of are self proclaimed good people and they, and they believe they're doing good, but the vitriol that they're sending out to others just juxtaposes who they believe they are. You know, and it's, it's the opposite, you know, it's, it's, it's the opposite of what they claim to be. And, and it's just, if somebody has a different view. Uh, wow. I mean, it's just, forget it. You know, they want, they go to the ends of the earth to try to like destroy that person. And yeah, that's kind of like the whole, uh, this whole thing about like cancel culture. I don't really talk about that in the book, but the very people that are, you know, virtue signaling to everybody else are the ones that do everything to destroy your life just because you have a different opinion than they have. I've had that happen to me, you know, cause I do a lot of TV and uh, several years ago, I had a topic that I guess people d- didn't like what I had to say. And, you know, people call in the high school th- to try to get me fired. I had people uh, like a hundred phone calls to my office, oh my calling things that you wouldn't believe. Oh yeah. Simply because I, I stated an opinion that I have. That's right. All. Oh no. I, I, and that's really interesting to tie that to this lack of empathy. I, I think it's, it doesn't happen overnight, but over time and as the years go by with this, the culture that we're we're in, you know, empathy is the last thing to develop. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, that is just such an, a critically important skill as, as a human being, because that's what we are. I mean, that's what, yeah. you know, that's what separates us from other mammals, you know, our brains and our ability to, 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 to feel, you know, right. um, you know, feel for others and not just narcissistically feel for ourselves. Well, they say, I've read research studies that say that when you see another person face to face, it's much harder to be mean to them. But when you are, you know, when they're behind a curtain and you have the ability or the chance to push a button and judge them on something or whatever, it's much easier to be hard on them. And and that's the way it is on social media. You don't, you're, you don't really see them. So it's easier. Yeah. And it's it, that, and it's also shaping people's minds and they don't even know it. Well, exactly. And, and we are shaped by everything that we are exposed to, and especially our kids, you know, they're in such a young stage of development, even all the way through the teenage years, it's, it's a learning ground for them. And they're being shaped by all these experiences that they have. And, you know, they are getting really anxious. And I want to read a little quote from your book. It, It says, when everyone else's life seems so perfect, it's easy to feel like a failure. And I think that's exactly how teenagers are feeling right now and why there's so much anxiety 
there is so much anxiety. I mean, don't you see it, a lot of anxiety in your practice? Uh, it's, it's, it's epidemic. It's, it's absolutely epidemic. And I'll put it in perspective real quick. So what I discussed there is, so when you look at a preteen or teenager, okay, we'll call it adolescence, right? Mm-hmm. So adolescence in and of itself, you know, is a time, it's sort of the purgatory, you know, yeah. the, the middle stage between childhood <laughs> and adulthood. And you're kind of navigating all of these changes. You're going through puberty, your voice is changing and, and you're, and you're trying to figure out where you fit in, in the social pecking order and so forth. Right. So that's, so basically what I, what I talk about is, you know, if I could give the word adolescence, a one word definition, the word I would choose is insecurity. Okay. And that's the way it's supposed to be, right? That's part of what adolescence is. You na- navigate through this insecure stage and you come out, come out on top as an adult. Now, the layer on top of that, all that we've discussed, all of this bombardment of information and comparing oneself to other and everybody else's self-glorified photos and videos and successes and trophies and, and how they did in this, in, in this soccer game or how they did in this class. And kids are immersed in that, in, in the greatness of, of everybody else. And that, and that just adds another layer to this insecurity, uh, a big layer. And, and that perpetuates anxiety, self-doubt, fear. And it's constant. And that's why we have this, this, you know, this, this anxiety stress response coming from kids. So let's wrap up with some solutions. We have really talked about a lot of the problems. I hope that people today have really understood some deeper information. I think it's really important for parents to understand. And Tommy, you do such a great job of making this so easy to understand. I just want to promote your book again. It's just one of my favorites for being simple and to the point and easy to understand. So I think that we can all relate to the problem. What are, you know, what are some solutions? We've talked about a number of them. And in your book, I love how you have at the end of every chapter, you have tips and that really, really helps. But, but ultimately we got to cut back. And you, we can't keep doing the same thing over and over and expect a different result. So what, what is the best way for parents to help their kids? Yeah. And, you know, that's always the biggest question, you know, and I think pe- you know, people in general, you don't know, want to hear like, here's the answer. Boom. Mm-hmm. Oh, simple. Okay. Like here's, you know, here's how you, f- you, you, you put a, you know, a doorknob on a door. Okay. Hey, that's simple. So it's, 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 it's not very complicated, first of all. It's the everyday little things that we do, okay, mm-hmm. or don't do. And of course, everybody is aware we have to dial back our screen time, but we really need to first educate ourselves and understand, you know, what the consequences are, which is a lot of what my book is about in addition to the tips. When you have an understanding of what some of the consequences are, you know, neurologically, emotionally, socially, family-wise, and so forth, it's sort of, it, it's a sort of... Um, light bulb going off effect in your mind. That's right. And it can tell you to start taking the actions that are necessary, like not letting your kid have the phone in the car during school, making sure that you try your best to have family dinners. If you can't do that, sit down every night, just have conversations uninterrupted, you know, being aware of the, of your own amount of time that you're spending, you know, on screens and so forth and being an example for your student, sending your kid to school without the phone, even if they're the only one. Mm -hmm. So it's really about kind of challenging the social norm. That's what I really try to empower people to do. Challenge the social norm and do what you know with your gut is the right thing to do, even though it might not be, you know, what the popular thing is to do. Okay. Um, That's, that's just critically important. And and furthermore, you know, I'll leave you with this. We are called human beings, but we've turned into human doings because we're constantly doing, 
we're constantly distracting ourselves. And what we're distracting ourselves from ultimately is self, right? So what we need to do is get back to what, what the definition of a human being is. And that means being present. It means feeling the breath of air that you're taking in. It means acknowledging with your conscious mind all that you should be grateful for. It means recognizing consciously all that you seek to achieve in your life. The only way in which to do that is to remove the distractions as much as we possibly can and start getting fueled by what's within us, the, the, the thoughts that we could form and create on our own instead of them being formed and created by the outside, outside variables. So just a second ago, you said uh, you talked about being counter or challenging the social norm. And we are really big on that over here. It's yep. green strong. <laughs> and we really encourage parents to go counterculture, especially during adolescence. So can you just talk a second about the, the benefits of delaying smartphones and even video games, you know, just all the way through adolescence? Well, so, you know, one thing that, that I really pride myself on as a person and pride myself in terms of trying to, to uh, have others acquire is leadership, all right? Mm-hmm. So, what, so what is a leader, all right? So a leader is someone that does what is right, even if it's not popular. So if we're essentially what we're, what we're doing as parents and we don't know that we're doing is if we conform all the time, like a perfect example is when I give a lecture, I'll say, raise your hand if you think it's smart, you know, for uh, a, an 11 year old to have a smartphone. 200 people in the audience never once ever at any lecture as a parent raised their hand. All right. Yet the average age of first smartphone issuance is 10 and a half years old. So every one of those people that didn't raise their hand, they're almost probably 80% of them, their kids have phones, even though they know it's a bad idea. All right, so that's called social conformity. If we allow our kids to conform because that's what everybody else is doing, we let them play violent video games, we get them a phone when we know it's too young just because everybody else is, what we're inadvertently doing is teaching them how to be followers of the crowd. All right, now, if we prevent our kids from doing what everybody else is doing, much to their dismay, we're teaching them how to be leaders. I love that. I totally agree 100% with that. And that's why... We support parents who say enough is enough. We're going to hit the pause button. We're going to delay this. We're going to teach our kids to be different and we're going to make them leaders. I think we have to get more community support and get a movement started to make it okay for parents to delay. I think that we get, we start getting a few parents and there's going to be a lot more parents. And I think we can start to shift this thinking that this was all okay for our kids yeah, we create a new conformity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Create a new pathway. Yeah. Somebody has to do it. So, Tom, you and I are going to get out there and we're going to do it. We're going to pave this pathway to say, okay, oh, parents yeah. here, come over here. We're going to do it this way. To wrap up, can you give a final word of encouragement for parents who are listening today who are really kind of overwhelmed, right? Because they're maybe figuring out that their kids are more dependent on their video games than they want them to be. And they're certainly dependent on their phones. And maybe they want to, take their, their kid's phone away and just get them a, t- a talk text only phone, you know, maybe they want to replace that. Can you give some encouragement for those parents? Like what, what final words can you offer them? Yeah. Well, what I would say is this, you know, like the idea of, you know, if you have a kid that's 16 years old and has already had their phone for like seven years, um, taking that phone away from them is going to, the, the kid's going to, you're probably going to wind up having to put them in a mental hospital. Um, so <laughs> I, I mean, I hate to say that. So the best thing to do is, is, is dial it back, okay? Dial it back. 
period. And just and be strong with that. And if your kid is really angry and hate and says they hate you and so forth, one, I'll leave you with this. I remember at a lecture I was at about 20 something years ago on teenagers and the presenter said, if your teenager doesn't hate you, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> no, that's really good. And I'll have to say that I think that you can make changes. If you found out they were allergic to peanuts, you know, you would certainly have to remove the peanuts from that's their right. life. And real quick, I'm sorry, one last thing. So it's per, it's like this, okay? If somebody has a glass of wine with dinner every night, that's okay, right? If somebody has nine glasses of wine with dinner every night, there's a problem. And that's where we're at because we're spending, it's not really technology that's bad. It's the fact that the average kid is spending about nine hours a day and so are adults. And we need to just dial that back to a more manageable level. Well, and I just do want to encourage um, everyone listening that if you are ready or if you're just kind of over the whole argument and the conflict in your home that's happening all the time, please, please reach out to us and and look at our Facebook group that we have and get in there, ask parents questions. You, you can share the ages of your kids and you will have parents with those same age kids tell you things that really worked for them. And we're really trying to, to get this community going because we've, we've got to, we have too many kids that are really failing in life and families that are falling apart. Tom, your book has just been so helpful to so many families. And we are just blessed and thrilled to have you part of our team over here. Again, I want to encourage everybody to, to read that Tom. And I just want to thank you again so much for coming on today. Yeah. And I want, and I want to thank you too, for, you know, everything you do, you know, I've known each other for a while now, we're you know, right on the same page and, you know, we're going to get this done together. And, and one last thing, Mel, that I, that I, everybody listening, and I know they, they love listening to you and you're great at this is on your website, screenstrong.com is, is your screen strong challenge for families, which is the seven day sort of unplugged detox. So what I want to do right now, everybody that's listened to this podcast is I'm challenging you right now, go on that website and do this. You know, it's called, you know, anytime that we, uh, step out of our comfort zone, we win. So start getting comfortable, getting a little uncomfortable. You can do this for seven days, the screen strong challenge. Don't think about it. Just act on it. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Thank you so much. And yes, I agree that they should go on and do that challenge. It's just, it's not going to solve every problem, but it's going to get you started. It's a baby step to get you going in the right direction. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mel. Take care. I hope you all enjoyed listening today. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends. And head over to our website to donate and learn more about our Screen Strong Challenge that Tom just mentioned. Also, make sure to join our Screen Strong Families Facebook group where you will find support from other parents just like you. Remember, we've got your back and we are here to help you. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd, and stay strong. Stay strong.